In late spring of 1870, an elderly woman passed away. It was probably peaceful, surrounded by her two daughters and their families, in a home that had, unlike every other place she'd lived, known no strife nor pain. But we can't be entirely sure. Outside of her will, the woman didn't leave behind letters or diaries or pictures. She didn't even leave a headstone. All that's left of her are the memories and reflections of the people she met. Born African nobility, she lived the majority of her life as slave, then slave owner, after she was sold as a child. As she grew to hold the confidence and admiration of the man she would call both master and husband, she earned her freedom and land of her own. Navigating the turbulent times of early 1800s Spanish Florida as a black woman, she saw her life burn to the ground multiple times. Once, she held the match herself. Always, she found a way to survive. Always, she found a way to thrive. The name given to her, the one she answered to from the age of 13, was Anna Magigine Jai Kingsley. But before all that, she was Anta Magigine Indiaye. I'm not here for the grand schemes, and now, neither are you. Long history very short, this is Little Sights, and I'm Alana. Here we'll discuss the women who lived and died in the shadows cast by history's limelight. Let's talk about the African princess. Anta Ndiaye was born in 1793 in a village near present-day Lingier, Senegal. In those days, that piece of West Africa was torn between many warring people, primarily the Wolof, whom Anta and her family belonged to, and the Fula, or Fulani, the minority group of the region she lived in. Anta's father was either the ruler of the Jolof kingdom at the time of her abduction, or a direct descendant of the ruling family. Her last name, Indiaye, was passed down from the legendary founder of the Jolof Empire, Njan Jan Indiaye. Her mother may also have been a princess from another group in the area, making Anta royalty twice over. Little is known of Anta's upbringing specifically, but we know that the Jolof Empire, at the time of their discovery by the Portuguese as far back as 1444, had an advanced political system with a fairly developed caste system distinguishing nobles from commoners and slaves from workers and freemen. Islamic influence ran strong in the region, especially in the nobility, but Anta might also have subscribed to the common Wolof religion of animism, or the belief that everything is possessed by its own unique spirit. Her father most likely had several wives, but Anta's mother might have been the first wife, or even queen mother, a woman who was the leader of Jolof women and allowed much mobility and power in a society that otherwise forbade it to her gender. Slavery, in Anta's time, was a booming business, and had been for a while. The Jolof Empire was an active participant in the slave trade by the time the 17th century rolled around, exporting around a third of all African slaves. That did decline as other trading ports were built and the Wolof people were increasingly able to produce their own materials, but Anta was more than likely raised by a slave-owning father, and her people frequently took part in slave raids, as well as fell victim to them. Anta would learn that better than some. The Jolof Empire had once been united, but had long since split into five distinct states. Many of these states centered around the powerful coastal regions that sought to break from the Jolof monarchy. One of these was Fulani, founded by Koli Tingela in the 1600s, now surviving in the Futa Toro, 
a region in the middle of the Senegal Valley. One night in early 1806, what were probably Tiedo raiders from Futatoro decided to raid Anta's village, taking as many captives as they could, bound for the Atlantic slave trade. Anta Ndiaye was one of them. She was barely 13 years old. Her captors took her to the coastal town of Rufisk. Maybe she was sold for horses, maybe grain, maybe guns. But she was sold to European slavers and placed on a ship destined for Havana, Cuba. Anta survived the Middle Passage, crammed in the hold with dozens if not hundreds of her fellow human beings, malnourished, sick, and traumatized. Anta was not one of the many slaves who starved themselves or threw themselves from the boat to escape their fate and ultimately their lives, nor did she succumb to dysentery or measles, but there is little doubt she witnessed it. The slave trade was brutal, and Anta's journey was not nearly over. She landed in Havana sometime in the fall of 1806. The auctioneers stripped her of her name and her origins and placed her up on the block for sale with the others, just one face in a sea of hundreds. But it was a face that caught the eye of one Zephaniah Kingsley. Zephaniah Kingsley was a slave trader and merchant who lived in Florida, which was, in the early 1800s, a territory of Spain. An English Quaker by birth, he had moved first to South Carolina, then Florida as an adult, and managed lucrative businesses, including a plantation, in the state's northern half. He eventually gained citizenship in Spanish Florida, though this was likely so he was able to stay involved in the international slave trade after the United States banned the practice in 1807. In all things, Kingsley was a businessman first. He was, at the time of his first meeting Anta, 33 years old. 30 years older than the girl he was about to buy. And marry. Kingsley, in his lifetime, was a supporter of interracial coupling, claiming they led to strong, beautiful children that would prevent a race war. And besides Anta, he would go on to take three more African mistresses. Anta would be the only one he ever claimed to actually marry, although it was, of course, not one recognized by any church or the Spanish government. Instead, he claimed that they had married in an African ceremony in Cuba, barely days after Kingsley had made her his new purchase. There was no documentation of this event ever happening, merely Kingsley's word. From Cuba, they traveled the short distance to St. Augustine, Florida, then up the St. John's River to a small inlet now known as Doctor's Lake. Laurel Grove, Kingsley's plantation, was just off the water. Anta Magigine Indiae stepped off that boat as Anna Kingsley, slave, wife, and now expectant mother. Slavery is, unfortunately, one of the constants of human history, found on nearly every continent and every dominant people that have existed. To this day, it is still practiced, even though it is commonly acknowledged as the atrocity it is. Zephaniah Kingsley owned slaves. Many slaves. He married and impregnated a barely teenage girl who had been ripped from her relatives and her homeland, who had no one to speak on her behalf, who gave consent, if consent was given at all, because she needed to survive. He, by his own admittance, did everything in the interest of increasing his own fortune. He was not a good man. In the grand scheme of slave owners, however, Kingsley would be seen as a lenient master. 
He was a strong believer in manumission and emancipation, and often his slaves were able to work for their freedom, after which he would hire them back on for straight wages if they chose to work for him again. Spanish Florida had different rules for freed slaves than the United States. They were treated as their own class, able to own and inherit property and freely travel, and Kingsley strongly advocated for those rights whenever they were threatened. He felt that owners should foster within themselves a patriarchal feeling of affection towards their slaves, that ownership should be benevolent, and towards his own slaves he encouraged leisure and family time. He ran his plantations on a task system, meaning slaves had a quota to fill per day, which they could do as fast or as slow as they wanted, and then they were free to do what they liked, to an extent. This is not to turn the whole thing on its head and say, look, he wasn't as bad as he could have been. Kingsley was a paternalistic, greedy hypocrite, speaking of ending slavery one moment and making a new purchase the next, a proto-white savior who believed that black people needed to be controlled to be happy. But I wanted to give a clear picture of who and what Anna had been brought to, to make clear how she was able to do some of the things she was able to do later, because, to be depressingly realistic, she couldn't have done much of it without Kingsley's permission. Besides Zephaniah, there's also Anna's upbringing to consider. It is speculated that she was able to flourish as well as she did because there was, for better or worse, a level of familiarity to her circumstances. Her father had owned slaves in the Joloff kingdom, and it was not unheard of for slaves to marry their masters to get their freedom. Anna's father also likely had many wives. It was Anna's duty as wife to become like the queen mother and lead the women and families of Laurel Grove as Kingsley's first wife. On a personal level, it was her duty as a mother to provide the best possible future and security for her children. Emancipation was the goal, and though Kingsley was relatively benevolent in granting slaves their papers, Anna's efforts to make herself dependable, if not integral, to the running of the plantation and Kingsley's daily life couldn't hurt. But for now, Anna was a 13-year-old girl, likely scared and more than a little alone, in a new place. Laurel Grove, owned by Kingsley for three years by 1806, was a successful plantation that produced oranges, cotton, corn, and other vegetables. Run by 70 slaves at Anna's arrival, their numbers would swell to 100 by 1811. The slaves lived in two groups of houses on the property. Anna, however, always lived in the main house, with Kingsley. Her and Kingsley's first son, George, was born there in 1807. By that time, she had full supervision of the household. Her reach would soon expand to the families of other slaves that lived close by, and she quickly became involved in the running of the plantation. For lack of a better term, Anna thrived on the plantation. Kingsley would describe her as, quote, a fine, tall figure, black as jet, but very handsome. She was very capable and could carry on all the affairs of the plantation in my absence as well as I could myself. She was affectionate and faithful, and I could trust her. End quote. He was away from the plantation to oversee his other ventures very often, and according to him, usually left tasks to Anna and his manager, a former slave of his who had since been freed. Kingsley's words should be taken with a grain of salt, as other letters reference white overseers managing his plantation in his absence, but he did trust Anna and considered her character nearly above reproach writing later in life that he didn't think her, quote, truth, honor, integrity, moral conduct, or good sense will lose in comparison with anyone. 
For the next five years, Anna supervised the Laurel Grove households and the inner workings of the plantation. In that time, she would have two more children, Martha, born in 1809, and Mary, born in 1811. Both were Kingsley's. By 1811, she was considered by many that lived around St. John's River and Laurel Grove to be a free woman already. No doubt, they had visited the small retail store she ran on the river, selling Kingsley's goods to customers. As such, Kingsley writing up her emancipation papers to free her that year would have been a bit of a shock. But there they were, in black and white, the words necessary to free Anna from slavery. She was now 18 years old. Emancipation was vital to Anna. Her whole being, and her children's future, depended on Kingsley, who, on his own part, considered himself in great danger of dying at sea with how often he traveled. If he died without freeing her, Anna and her family, their children, would just be sold again. Kingsley freeing their children not long after Anna was a no-brainer. Anna had done it. Herself and her family secured. She continued her duties at the store in Laurel Grove, but she began to petition Spain to grant her her own land as a free woman. In 1813, her petition was granted, and she moved herself, her children, livestock, and 12 slaves she had purchased to five acres of land in Mandarin, across the river from the plantation, to start her own farm. Anna now owned property and was earning a profit all on her own. Her children were educated and adored by both their parents, She was respected and relatively powerful. It was as peaceful a life as she could likely ask for at that point. And it was doomed. In 1813, American forces attempted to annex Florida to the United States. Backed by Creek Native Americans and outlaws, they began attacking and raiding Northeast Florida, looting, killing, and enslaving any black people they found, regardless of whether the person had gained their freedom or not. They managed to kidnap Zephaniah Kingsley, refusing to let him go until he endorsed the attack, now known as the Patriots' Rebellion. He soon escaped, but did not return to Laurel Grove, and was, for all intents and purposes, missing. The rebels reached Laurel Grove quickly, occupying the land and capturing 41 of the slaves residing there. Across the river, Anna could likely hear the noises of gunfire and screaming. Her past had come back to haunt her. A place she lived, a place that was supposed to mean safety, was once again under attack by invading forces. And if she was caught, she might once again be sold into slavery. The timeline of what Anna did next is under some debate. What came first, the gunboat or the fire? The version I will tell is this. One night, a Spanish gunboat floated by her Mandarin house, patrolling the St. John's River. Anna canoed out to the boat stopping them and demanding they listen to her. There were marauders hiding on the plantation and in the forest surrounding it. Everyone in Laurel Grove was in extreme danger. They had to help. With Anna's help, the Spanish ferried out some 20 slaves hiding around Laurel Grove and the surrounding area. Saving 20 plus people and her own children, that was no small thing, but Anna wasn't done. With the insurgents mostly scattered to the forest, She went to Laurel Grove, she took a flame, and then she set the whole plantation ablaze. And when her home for the past seven years was burning to the ground, she crossed the river one more time and set fire to her own farm. Then she escaped with the others and left nothing but ashes behind. The Spanish didn't leave her with nothing, however. 
For her loyalty and her loss, they awarded her, personally, a land grant of 350 acres. Zephaniah Kingsley would eventually make his way back to Laurel Grove to find the remains. He vowed to rebuild, but the damage was near complete. In the meantime, he bought himself another plantation down on Fort George Island, near the mouth of the river. 1,000 acres of lush land, clean beaches, and Native American burial grounds. In 1814, Anna joined her husband there and set to rebuilding her life. The Kingsley Plantation, as it would come to be known, had been largely abandoned by its previous owner and Patriots Rebellion leader, John McIntosh. When the Kingsleys arrived, there was nothing left but the main house. Anna lived in a rented house in Fernandina, a town nearby, while the Fort George Plantation and Laurel Grove were being restored. Kingsley had not only property to rebuild, but his fortune as well. He was back at sea soon enough, leaving Anna behind to supervise construction at Fort George. For the next two years, she advised, and her influence can still be seen in the buildings on the Kingsley Plantation. The slave quarters, for example, 32 in total, were built in a semicircle, completely unique to Florida plantations, but not unlike the way villages back in her homeland were laid out. They were also built of tabby, a popular type of concrete in West Africa, not often seen amongst the wooden houses of Florida. Also built was a large house that would come to be known as the Mam Anna House. Connected to the main house by a covered walkway, it consisted of a large kitchen and parlor and rooms for her and her children. This was, once again, similar to how things were done in West Africa, where wives lived separately from their husbands, especially if said husband was in a polygamous marriage, which Zephaniah Kingsley soon was. Anna was joined by first one wife, then another, until Kingsley had a large family consisting of four co-wives, or as some people term them, concubines, and nine children. It was a complex family dynamic, but visitors reported that when they were hosted at Fort George, they all sat at the table together, Anna at the head and children all around, in a parlor looked over by portraits of African women. Kingsley's niece remembered visiting the plantation and meeting this great lady who sat at the head of the table. Quite in contrast to Zephaniah's physical description of Anna when she was a teen, this woman seemed to be, quote, not black, with smooth, light brown skin. Anna was, according to the niece, quite beautiful, impossible to look away from, and regal, but quiet. Another white woman who had befriended Anna in those times, Susan Langle, agreed. She called Anna the African princess, but also remembered her as being incredibly lonely, despite the company of her family, co-wives, and the 60 or so slaves she looked after. Maybe all of that, and the job she had at the plantation, was the cause of her loneliness. In the end, Anna had quite set herself apart from everybody else, and while that had likely always been the goal, it might have also been quite isolating. Anna would spend 23 years on the Fort George plantation, in relative tranquility, but outside of their 1,000 acres, Florida was changing. In 1821, ownership of the territory had passed from Spain to the United States under the Adams-Otis Treaty, becoming a state the following year. Under the treaty, the rights of freed people under Spanish rule were meant to be respected, but this was unfortunately not always the case. The United States had different rules for both slaves and freedmen, and soon Florida had passed policies to bring the state more in line with the rest of the country. In contrast with the Spanish systems that had allowed for three classes of people, whites, freedmen, and slaves, the United States was much more binary. 
and laws restricting manumission and emancipation were soon enacted. As time passed, the difference between a person of color that was free and one enslaved became essentially non-existent. Kingsley tried to fight these charges, getting himself appointed to the Territorial Legislative Council in 1823 so he could exert some influence over these new laws, but to no effect, and he resigned in 1824. In 1828, he released a document called, and bear with me, A Treatise on the Patriarchal or Cooperative System of Society as it Exists in Some Governments and Colonies in America and in the United States, under the name of slavery, with its necessity and advantages. Neither Kingsley's actions in 1823 nor this pamphlet were calling for abolishment or a blanket emancipation. The man was still a huge fan of slavery and thought nobody was better suited for it than Africans. But he desperately wanted to keep in place the rights of freedmen, the opportunity for manumission, and a benevolent slave system that, quote, easily amalgates with the ordinary conditions of life. He was also, of course, keenly interested in seeing the rights that had been guaranteed to his children and Anna respected, especially in regards to any property he might pass on, and they were now under threat. As for what Anna thought, we'll never know. She had her fourth and last child, John, in 1824, and having a baby born in this new, uncertain world had to have been terrifying. Conditions in Florida were growing even more unfriendly to her and the other black people of Fort George, freed or not. Things worsened after Nat Turner's rebellion in 1831, with many states, Florida included, using the threat of future slave rebellions to tighten the legal noose even further. Zephaniah Kingsley could see the writing on the wall. The treaties had damaged his reputation in Florida, and any influence he might have had was spent. Things were not going to get better anytime soon. So the Kingsley family had to get out. Kingsley started by parceling out his property to his various children, but in 1835, he made the drastic decision to move to Haiti with his and Anna's eldest son, George, and a few slaves. The 1804 Haitian Revolution had made Haiti an independent black country that outlawed slavery. Haiti at the time was welcoming people, primarily freedmen from the Americas, to come to the island and settle and work the land. Kingsley picked a portion of land, which he named Mayorasco de Coca, and began to build a plantation. His slaves would instead be indentured servants who would earn their freedom after nine years, which was not unlike how Kingsley already worked. In 1838, he brought Anna and the rest of his family over. Anna's two daughters, Martha and Mary, now grown, had since married white planters in Florida and remained in the U.S. Mayor Roscoe de Coca was run by around 50 slaves turned servants, heavily wooded and teeming with fruits and flowers. Kingsley called Haiti an Isle of Liberty and considered life on the plantation there to be idyllic. The Kingsleys were making plans to stay there for the rest of their lives, putting in roadworks to connect themselves to the community, and even planning to build a school. But those hopes would never see fruition. By 1842, Kingsley was 77 and approaching the end of his life. He split his Haitian property amongst his wives and children as he had his American, with the stipulation that if anyone left Haiti to go back to the United States, they were required to forfeit their share. He filed his will in Florida, then, in 1843, he boarded a ship headed for New York to settle other business. He died on the voyage at 78 years old. The ground was not even settled over Kingsley's casket when problems over his will began to erupt. 
George Kingsley, his eldest son, was now, according to his will, the primary care for Kingsley's estate, worth $5 million in today's money. But Kingsley's white relatives protested this, as well as the other lands and properties deeded out to Kingsley's wives and children. Martha and Anna McNeil, Kingsley's sister and niece, respectively, cited that Florida law, which the will had been filed under, forbade black people from owning property, and claimed that Anna Kingsley and her family had left the Florida properties abandoned to go to Haiti to gain their freedom. George Kingsley went to defend the rights and inheritance of himself and his family, and the courts were inclined to rule in his favor. He was up and down the coast for three years fighting for land interests. But, unfortunately, in 1846, George's ship was lost at sea. Anna's eldest son was dead. Her husband was dead. And though George had fought admirably, he had not achieved total victory. Some of Kingsley's claims were still being challenged. Imagine yourself, a grieving mother watching from Haiti as circumstances beyond your control took away your loved ones and as your enemies tried to threaten the only insurance your family had for security in the United States, all while in charge of a booming plantation run by 60 people, all of them now looking to you. Anna's loneliness, I can only imagine, would have been overwhelming. But Anna did not survive slavery and raiding by hiding from it. She put her remaining son, John, in charge of Mayor Roscoe de Coca, and, just months after George's death, left Haiti, forfeiting her claims there, and went back to Florida to fight for her promised inheritance in the unfriendly courts of Duval County. Race relationships were tense, to put it mildly, but there were still some white allies that Anna was able to call upon to support her in her fight. The odds were stacked against her, but her argument was simple. Anna charged the courts to honor the promise they had signed in 1821. The Adams-Otis Treaty that had made Florida a territory of the United States also guaranteed the same rights to freedmen that had been born before 1822 that they would have had under Spanish rule. Anna had not fled to Haiti to gain freedom. She had been her own woman since 1813, as had her children, and had this still been a Spanish territory, she would be free to own land and inherit property. To deny these rights was to go back against oaths the United States themselves had made, and though that wouldn't be uncommon behavior in this time of hostility towards former slaves, in this case, the courts upheld Anna's defense. Zephaniah Kingsley's will would be honored in full. Fort George, however, with its rows of fruit and tabby houses, Mam Anna's house overlooking it all, was lost to her. The plantation had been sold years before. Anna, now cut off from Haiti as well, instead settled down close to her two daughters, Martha and Mary, in Jacksonville, Florida. Anna sold that home in 1856 and moved on to her daughter Martha's property. Over the 1850s, the Kingsleys sold most of their slaves, sensing the change coming in the wind. Her family, her daughters, and their husbands were union sympathizers and supporters, and after Civil War broke out in the 1860s, they had to be evacuated from Jacksonville after its capture by Union forces, traveling all the way to New York City in 1862. They made their way back to Florida a year later, but had to stay in Fernandina until 1865. In that year, Anna finally resettled next to the St. John's River, her most constant companion these many long years. She died there in 1870 at 77 years of age. She was survived by two daughters and a son, and many grandchildren whose children's children would go on to help create the upper class of Floridian African Americans for the next century. 
Before I painted a full picture of Zephaniah Kingsley, what he was, for good or for ill, I hope, too, that despite the lack of primary sources on her thoughts and character, we can see Anna as well. Anna was regal and dignified, smart and capable enough to raise herself up to Kingsley's right-hand woman. She loved her children, and she cared for the people under her, enough to risk her life to save theirs. She was a firm supporter of the Union cause. But that's only one side of her. Anna was also a slave owner who helped run plantations, as were many other African women and men in those times. She still employed slaves in her household and lands after Zephaniah's death, and her own will, written in 1860, did not free the four slaves in her possession but passed them on to her daughter Martha to be freed or sold at her discretion. One of her requests to the courts in 1846, after making sure that her property was respected, had been to rent out slaves that had been transferred back to her care from Haiti to other plantations, to the benefit of Anna's pocketbook. This is not the story of a saint or a revolutionary, but a woman who adapted and survived. We have her context, but we will never have Anna Kingsley's experience. We will never be the girl ripped from her home, sent on a terrible journey across the sea, surrounded by the sick and dying and scared, sold to a man she didn't know, taken to a place she'd never seen, living a life she was never meant to live. And despite the odds, she did live. Anna grew her roots and held firm against the storms life sent her way, and she would not be moved. At least, not metaphorically. Pieces of Anna are scattered in her wake. She left no journals or portraits, but her home on the old Kingsley Plantation, Ma'am Anna's house, still stands today, receiving thousands of visitors each year. The farm she bought after the death of her husband, 22 acres of fertile land in Arlington, now forms the base of the Jacksonville University campus in Florida. Over 200 years after her disappearance from her home in West Africa, descendants of the people Anta had been taken from would finally discover what had happened to her and come to see her home. When they returned to Senegal, they and the NDIA royal family held celebrations in her honor. In 2018, a street in the town of Rufisk, the last glimpse she had ever seen of her homeland, was named for her. We may never know where Anna Magikine Jai Kingsley was buried, but after 212 years, Anta was finally brought home. Her story might not be one that ever shows up in movies or books, but it is undoubtedly one of a woman's great courage and fortitude in the face of adversity. And sometimes, those are the greatest stories that can be told. <laughs>